0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Atlantis Ocean podcast, the podcast that covers everything going on in the vast world of ocean biodiversity. New Atlantis is tackling the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change by aligning community, government, industry, and individual benefit with the improving ecological health of our oceans. I'm JJ Ramberg. I am very excited today to chat with Brett Jenks from the incredible organization Rare. Brett and I met at a conference in Costa Rica earlier this year, and the moment I walked into the door, people kept telling me, you have to meet Brett. His work dovetails with yours at New Atlantis perfectly, and you are going to have so much to talk about. They were right. I learned so much from the work that Brett has done around the world that has truly been life-changing for so many people and also the planet. Hi, Brett. Hi, Brett.
1: Hi, and Thanks for having me.
0: What you do is so interesting to me because you look at conservation from a whole different angle. So to kick this off, just explain what Rare is.
1: So Rare is a global conservation organization. We've worked in about 60 countries around the world since the, you know, basically mid-1970s. And I think we're different in some ways because we tend to focus on how to meet people where they are and how to look at At conservation through the lens of human behavior. So each of us in our daily lives, based on how we eat, what we eat, how we commute, what we drive, how we transport ourselves around, how we heat our homes, all those little decisions that we make influence the environment. And and so we have looked at conservation for decades now through the lens of what are we all doing in our individual lives, whether we're farmers or fishers or executives. And how can we change our behavior to make the planet more sustainable? And that's just not, that's really not the norm. Uh, That's not how most conservation groups work. So we're different and complementary, which means we partner with hundreds and hundreds of other environmental groups all over the world.
0: Even though we know things are terrible for the environment, terrible for us, we still do them. And that's what you're fighting against, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, basically... Once we develop our own habits, once we develop our own behaviors, we get very used to them. We start to identify ourselves by them, and change is hard. It is not easy to change behaviors. If all of a sudden you have in the, on the coast of the Philippines uh, a group of people who for three or four generations have fished a certain way using certain equipment with certain rules and certain expectations, and suddenly realize that they've been overfishing their reef for 50 or 60 years, you have a crisis, you have a potential calamitous risk to their fishery, to their way of life, but making change to the way someone fishes or this way someone farms, those are not you know for the faint of heart making those kinds of changes. It's not easy.
0: And you've done all of this research in your organization and collected a bunch of research around the way we behave and have taken that research in order to change behavior. Talk about one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the collective versus the individual and how that changes behavior. And for Rare works in so many different places, but for the purposes of this conversation, we'll focus on the ocean since that's what we do at New Atlantis and that's what this podcast is all about. Great.
1: So, yeah, I mean, How do we impact the ocean? How do the communities with whom we're working impact the ocean? Well, first, we'll start off with the fact that they, so many people unknowingly depend on the ocean. We all depend on the ocean just for breathing. You know, our oxygen comes in great part from the ocean. We depend on the ocean to manage the climate, to keep a consistent atmosphere, you know, a mean average global temperature around the planet that lets us inhabit. And, and evolve, you know, and thrive here. But day to day, there's probably 50 million coastal fishers around the world who eke out a living every single day on the water. And when they use dynamite or cyanide, they can wipe out years of a natural resource in a couple of minutes. You know, you think about putting up uh, in, in certain parts of the world. There's still a lot of what's called bomb fishing, and You know, if it takes 200 years for coral to grow a few inches and you can set it back with an explosive and just have all the fish float to the top, it's a very easy way to fish, but you're wiping out hundreds of years of habitat development. So that's one behavior that you simply want to eliminate. You then think about the kinds of nets or the the equipment that is being used. And as we've become more industrialized and as there've been more fishers on the water, you have a lot of overfishing. So the fish we're catching are getting smaller. The habitats we're fishing in are getting less healthy. And so the behaviors tend to come down to where do you fish? With what gear do you fish? How often do you fish? You know, what do you take? What do you leave behind? And so very simply, we've set up a program that we call Fish Forever over the last 12 years. And, and with this Fish Forever program, we basically set out to change the way local artisanal fishers who usually fish within you know 10 or 12 nautical miles of the coast usually within 2 or 3 nautical miles of the coast but these are the world's poorest most vulnerable fishers who feed 500 million to a billion people every day their number one supply of animal protein so we're talking about one of the most important food sources and we're talking about a few basic changes so here's what good looks like from a behavior change standpoint can we get local communities to agree that there are certain places where they just shouldn't fish because they're spawning aggregation areas or there happens to be critical habitat for for nurseries like mangroves, you know, no netting in the mangroves because you're going to wipe out all the juveniles and all the juveniles never get to grow up to become your major producers or your food source. And so whether it's nets or bombing or not fishing in spawning aggregation areas, you get started with a sense that if we adopt a few of these behaviors, we can recover our fish stocks. And, and what begins to happen is, as soon as a few leaders step up and say, "Okay, no more dynamite fishing," we're going to reduce the or uh, enlarge in the size of the mesh we're using on our nets, and we're not going to fish in these particular areas. Very quickly, they start to see for themselves improvements in the fish populations. And so by having a group of leaders adopt a practice and having some early results, you create a new norm, you create a new expectation. And ultimately, this comes down to our fundamental belief. And given all the research we've done that people really change behaviors for three reasons. We change behaviors when we see other people changing their behaviors. You know, you all remember probably the first time you saw someone talking on a cell phone and you thought, what a ridiculous buffoon that person is. And then five years later, everyone in the world is talking on cell phones. But we had to see them. We had to see that they were normal. They had to be observable. So observability is, becomes really important. There's some communities, for example, 10 years ago in Madagascar that said, all of the legal fishers, we're, we're all going to paint a big emblem on our sails because these were fishers who were so poor, they don't have gasoline and they're fishing by small sailboat dugout canoes with sails. And they said, we're going to be able to know who's fishing legally because, you know, we the people who are going to reform this fishery are all going to paint our sails with a certain logo and a certain color. They made legal fishing the norm. They made it observable. They made it attractive. All of a sudden, everyone in the village said, Oh, this is how we now fish. We fish sustainably. So one. People change when they see other people change. Two, people change when they start to think other people expect them to change. So once you set that expectation that there's a group of leaders and they're all on this path to sustainability, you immediately start to ask yourself, even subconsciously, well, am I doing something wrong? Should I be doing this too? And that change is really powerful. Just the expectation that you're you're going to change. And then finally, people change really quickly when they think the rate of change around them is accelerating because people don't flee the theater when they see smoke, they flee the theater when they see other people fleeing the theater.
0: All of this requires that first tipping point though, right? Getting the first leaders to do that. And so how do you get leaders to Go in and change behavior. When I mean, for instance, if you give the bombing example, maybe a couple people start, but then other people fill in beneath them, and so now they are the ones who are kind of losing when it comes to their own livelihood.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's interesting where where and where you're headed with that with that sort of logic, which makes complete sense. Is is almost the economic model mm-hmm. of fish recovery, which is, and also the tragedy of the commons, where you'd say, well, why would I make a change if everyone else is? going to continue to fish illegally. And generally every community we look at, and this is generically speaking, okay, generally speaking, you look at any community with any new technology that's being adopted, and you can kind of follow a particular path. Some people call it the S adoption curve, where, you know, the first people to adopt are going to be the, you know, 1% of the population, and you might call those the innovators. And then there's two or 3% who are going to follow and they're called the early adopters. Those two kinds of people generically speaking again, we're generalizing, tend to be different. Innovators tend to just want the latest thing or they're willing to try the newest thing, but they don't talk much about it. Early adopters that next group tend to be more much more influential and much more vocal. But either way, we're still talking about 4 or 5% of communities and therefore it doesn't take a lot of new adopters in order to create a sense that change is coming. And so if you follow the logic then, when we move into, let's say, when the government of Colombia asks us if we would help them in South America promote climate-smart agricultural practices, we start off by asking ourselves, all right, in this, let's say, in this province of Meta, in the slope hills of of the Andes, what are those first adopters going to look like? And the behavioral scientists that work at Rare have coined them, you know, almost like the, um, the more gettable of the community, if you will. And they call them the low resistance farmers or the low resistance fishers. Those are the ones that are just psychologically more disposed to take a risk, take a chance, try something new, recognize there's a problem. And so you have to be able to build trust, engage those innovators, and then hand them the microphone and let them start talking to the mid-resistance fishers or even the high-resistance fishers, And you sort of ride this wave up this adoption curve. Generally, that's how we see change. And generally, that's how we actually see it happen.
0: hmm Do you find that it happens fast, slow, different in every community? Every
1: community is different. The rate of change is different. Sometimes you get really lucky. Sometimes you get stuck you know it's it's not as if we're in control of all the variables either because right. you know you have these you have these external exogenous shocks sometimes there's a, there's an election and you get a new politician in charge sometimes there's a typhoon and you wipe out the habitat you're trying to protect there's an earthquake there's a civil strife there, there's just so many variables in society humans are really dynamic so they're they're all different and yet They all kind of follow a a similar pattern because no matter where we are, if we're talking about rural Brazil, rural China, or even, you know, Hollywood showrunners, we're all people and they, we tend Mm -hmm. to do things relatively similarly.
0: I have to imagine you're familiar with Robert Cialdini. Yes. Yeah. So, so Robert Cialdini wrote this for anyone who doesn't know who's in the audience, I wrote this book called Influence, which I read in business school and very much influenced me because it is all about human behavior. And one story that I found so fascinating in that book is the use of the word because... So that if you just simply say, because to something you're doing, it changes people's behavior. Really quickly, this story, and I'll see if I get it right, but he put people in line for a Xerox machine, just to show how long ago this was, a Xerox machine, and then someone would cut the line and they'd say, can I get in front of you? And like 50% of the people would say no. And then someone would get in line and say, can I get in front of you because I have to take my kid to the doctor? And something like 90% of the people would say yes. Yes. And then he'd say, cut in line in front of you and say, can I get in front of you because with no reason after, and still I'm making up these numbers, but 80% of people would let them cut in line. So there are all these little things in human behavior of just saying, just little tricks like that. I hate to call them tricks, but they are, right? Just words, just using the word because made such a big difference. Do you employ things like that at Rare?
1: We do all the time. I mean, there's probably a catalog of 200 little insights like that. And some of them apply to lots of different, you know, problem sets. And some of them come up very rarely. But you know, it's also challenging when you talk about these things because A, it's an emerging science. There's no unified mm-hmm. theory of human behavior change. So you have to sort of simplify it and dumb it down to create a, a basic conversation. But then once you're really sort of in the lab designing a treatment or designing an intervention or a program, You have to have this, you know, whole group of people, some of whom are practitioners with no behavioral science training, but who know fishers or farmers or writers or what have you. And then you need behavioral scientists who are sort of rolling out the list of, you know, options, ingredients that you might want to create. And you have to sort of do triage and figure out what's the hypothesis for this scenario at this point, and how are we going to learn really quickly whether it's working in order to be effective?
0: Another one that I love from that book, and I'm sure you must use this because it fits in your three ways that people change behavior, is the idea of getting people to relate to something that is very close to them. And we see this in hotels all the time. So I think he did a study. It was you could put a sign up that said, you know, we don't want to wash the towels every day, so please pick them up. And some low percentage of the people would not get their towels washed every day. But when you said something like, 90% of people who stay in this room, don't clean their towels every day, then the percentage of people who didn't clean their towels every day went up astronomically because suddenly you can relate to that. It's somebody who stayed in this room just like me.
1: Yeah. It's sort of the people like us do things like this. So to, to the point about expectations, when people mm-hmm. just like us, when our friends start you know, only ordering sustainable f- seafood, we are way more likely to Whether we know it, we're doing it or not, we're just way more likely to follow suit because subconsciously we think they expect us to do this. We think it's the right thing to do because it's already been validated by our friends and our family and our peers. That's why we all tend to look alike and talk alike and relate because we want to fit in with our tribe. That's how we've survived these millennia by not being kicked out, by being able to follow along and enjoy you know, the fruits of the harvest and the shelter and the civilization. We don't really want to be too abnormal because that ends up costing us food or shelter or money or love or what have you. So I'd like to say we're lemmings, you know, noble lemmings with thumbs.
0: With thumbs. Brett, Rare has had so many success stories, but I know that you face a lot of headwinds also. So I'd love if you would to just Give us an example of one success story and how you push back against all the challenges.
1: I would say something really exciting that's happened over the last 10 years is we started working on coastal fisheries. And, you know, if you think about it, the case for these local fisheries is about as strong as any other habitat or any other place on the planet. 50 million fishers, 250 million jobs, a food source for roughly a billion people. These habitats are the most imperiled in the ocean, mangroves, seagrass buds, coral reefs. It's where the poorest people live in the richest coastlines. It's also where we've had the least investment of philanthropy and government funding for nature. So you have richest places, poorest people, least amount of support, and a wholesale tragedy of the commons. Everyone racing to catch the last fish. No rules and regulations, overfishing globally, and not even enough data for us until very recently to know how bad the problem was. And so Rare had been asked multiple times, would you come work on behavior change with local fisheries? And for years, we said no, because we didn't have a single fishery manager on our staff or on our board. We knew very, very little about the ocean and about fisheries. But eventually, we just said, look, This is not unlike other problems. If these communities were empowered to set up areas where they weren't going to fish, if they were going to set up areas where they were going to fish sustainably, and if they could create new norms such that everybody just started fishing more sustainably, as hard as that actually may sound, we could actually recover these fisheries and people would be way better off. And so would nature. So why not try? The problem was nobody wanted to fund it. We had no reputation in the space, first of all. Philanthropists weren't really funding this kind of work anyway, because everyone thought it was pretty impossible to have 50 million coastal fishers suddenly cooperate and manage their local waters. Because if the government can't do it, if the federal government couldn't do it, how can a local community do it? And that was the view. I'm really proud of the fact that our board took this risk, our staff took this risk. Today, there's 100 people working with, at Rare, working with hundreds of local organizations to bring this solution set to 1,700 communities along the coasts of Philippines, Indonesia, Brazil, Honduras, Guatemala, Palau, Mozambique. And we're going to grow beyond that. We're now scaling the program. There's about 30 institutional funders. There's lots of individuals funding us. And we finally believe collectively there's literally something we can do to preserve the territorial seas. And that has required us to learn how to change the behavior of hundreds of thousands of fishers to create savings clubs uh, within their families so they can begin to you know create wealth and thrive economically. And so it's been a pretty amazing 10-year run.
0: Can you tell us the story of any individual community?
1: One of the first communities that I was involved with on this coastal fishery work was Hambongan Island in the Philippines. And there was this young guy there named Tian Sempran. He was the 10th son of his parents. And he uh, was a local fisherman, as were his brothers and his father before him. And he suddenly realized just how badly overfished the local waters were. And he heard that Rare was going to be working to sort of launch a campaign. And he volunteered. He said, I I, I would like to lead this effort. This this is really meaningful for me. And Tian worked over the course of two years to design a mascot, design the campaign logo and slogan, to uh, create a committee of all the local municipal leaders to to run this campaign, and lo and behold, two years later, all of the fishers in this community of Hombongan Island were fishing in new ways, in the right places, and they were protecting from outsiders the no-take zones, which were now growing in population so that they could spill over into the local fishing areas. Essentially, what they created was like an ocean annuity. You know, they set up this fish bank, this no-take zone, and the interest, the biological interest grows, and the biological interest just flips over into the, the actual cash account where they can go and withdraw fish. And so this tragedy of the commons, no rules, no regulations, is now managed, you know, the way Eleanor Ostrom, rest her soul, before she won the Nobel Prize, would have envisioned communities managing their coastal waters all over the world. And it's a credit to people like Tian Sempran and the hundred, now thousands of local leaders around the world stepping up to say, look, just give me the toolkit. Give me some assistance. Show me how to do this. But our people are capable of doing this. That's what's so exciting about
0: it. I imagine in those early days, too, it takes a lot of policing and so does that become somebody's job or a group of people's job, or is it that you're depending on the whole community to do kind of a community watch to make sure people aren't breaking the rules?
1: It's a little different everywhere, but generally speaking, yeah. And the, the, the more poor, the more remote. You don't have a Coast Guard. You don't have a federal law enforcement presence at all, ever. So it has to be about community policing. And so just a couple of weeks ago, I was on a you know, essentially a dugout canoe with a local family headed out to an observation deck in the middle of a no-take zone off the coast of the Philippines where they would take two-day shifts and different families Mm -hmm. would set up to be the observers, almost like National Park Service watching for fires. These folks are watching for people coming in from other communities to fish illegally in their waters. And then they have cell phones They can intervene. They can call the local police, the local authorities. So in every municipality now, they're developing a protocol for community protection and surveillance of their own waters.
0: It's, I was thinking, sort of like a neighborhood watch also. But you talked about teaching people around savings as well. So when Rare comes in, you're looking at this whole thing very holistically. It's not just about, hey, let's fish in a different way or in a different place, but you seem to be getting at the problem from a lot of different directions.
1: Yeah, and that's really what, when you're really talking about engaging communities and you're talking about building trust, this isn't a transaction. It's not like we're gonna do a deal here and we're gonna pay you and this change is gonna happen. And I think what social science tells you over and over is that you can't just buy a change. Once you stop paying people, the change no longer continues there's a whole body of emerging science that that points to lasting change really emanating from culture change. Ultimately, what we're talking about is a sustainable culture. And it's one where, generally speaking, we're talking about male fishers. I mean, there's probably 40% of the jobs go to women. Many of those that are off the water, you know, in the processing. So generally speaking, I think you can say most of the fishers are, are men. And Most of the savings clubs are run by women. What's interesting is they follow a similar sort of philosophy, which is if you save parts of the ocean, you can live off the interest elsewhere. If you save money in that little lockbox, you're on a path to financial literacy. And in fact, eventually you're on a path to bankability. And so in both cases, we're talking about a little deferred gratification, a little savings, so that you can be more resilient biologically, more resilient financially, and then more resilient socially. So this isn't just a fishery conservation strategy. It's more about community engagement, community empowerment, and creating a culture that has a longer term view, recognizing the many shocks that are going to be coming our way due to climate change, due to resource degradation, due to migration, and just uncertainty. We want a more resilient planet, and that's going to require more resilient people.
0: How much does biodiversity or climate change, big issues like that come into these conversations? Or is it really focused on my life, my day-to-day, taking care of my family, and this is a solution for making that better?
1: It's a great question. I mean, generally speaking, I, I wouldn't say that we ever lead a conversation with the word biodiversity or climate change. because. Everywhere we work, people know nature is really valuable. They They probably don't use that word, biodiversity, but they also know climate change is happening. They're seeing it every day in their daily lives. They know people affected by it constantly. So it's not a political debate. It's not a conceptual or intellectual conversation. It's more like, what can I do to be a better parent? What can I do to be a better citizen? What can I do to be a better mother or father or son or daughter, or neighbor? And how can we take better care of our community? And how do we defend our right to be able to grow up and thrive in a place we were born, where we don't have to leave, because we can no longer count on the habitat or ecosystem or a stable climate. And so it's it's much more fundamental. And I think that gives us the benefit as conservationists of not you know, Ultimately, I don't think we even care why people change as long as the change happens. You, know, you think about something like climate change in the United States. If someone doesn't believe in climate change, but they eat a plant-rich diet, they drive electric, an electric vehicle, they charge it with solar panels, I don't care what they believe about climate change. They're already doing the right thing. I would hope they would right. you know, help in the in the ballot box down the road and want a politician who cared too. But but I think I think too often liberal causes get caught up in wanting to prescribe why people do things in addition to getting the right outcome.
0: You work with so many communities around the world, and often they're very remote, as you were talking about. As there learnings that go on between communities, I know you all can come in and share what you've learned from other places. But do people connect with each other, too, from these different communities? Oh,
1: big time. We, we took our board of directors two weeks ago to Honduras, and we convened 22 coastal mayors. The mayor of every, basically almost every municipality on the whole north coast of Honduras came together for a couple of days to compare notes. And what was fascinating is how a couple of those mayors are leading the charge. They're reforming their fisheries. Now it's fair to say every mayor on the North Coast wants in on the game because they see the benefits coming to the community. But we had, we brought in a Monica Varela, who runs a climate-smart agriculture program in Colombia. And she came in and just did a quick talk to those 22 mayors. And instantly they said, you know, all of our fishers are also farmers. And our reefs and our coastal habitats would be better off if we could do the same thing you're talking about doing with fisheries with you know, our coastal farmlands too. And so it doesn't take much once you get people in a room to see how quickly ideas can spread. So the answer is yes. Often, once you get a couple of mayors down a coast involved, the next five or six mayors just show up and say, hey, what about me? When can my community get involved in this recovery strategy?
0: And you have a series of it's it's no take zones and then sustainable fishing zones, and if you work close enough, then they all start to get connected with each other too. No,
1: exactly. In fact, what's really exciting is now there's there's a team at Rare has built a you know essentially a a modeling capacity that lets us look at the flow of coral larvae and the flow of fish larvae, and you can build predictive models to figure out what is the optimal network of no-take zones along the coast of the Philippines or along the coast of Mozambique or Brazil that will, you know, optimize for fishing and for long-term sustainability. And so if you have that science, and then you have the political science needed to engage the mayors, and then you have the science of community engagement, with those three layers, you, you get those people in the room. And then you can optimize the design of your coastal management. Where are we not going to fish? Where are we going to fish? With what kind of gear? What kinds of fish? How are we going to collect data and then evolve over time to optimize for people and for nature? And that's the dream. I mean, eventually, there's 8 billion of us. We are in the Anthropocene. We have to know how to manage ourselves if we're going to inhabit this planet sustainably, that's where we're headed.
0: Am I right in thinking that when you started this work, you started really at the local level, but as you continue this work, you have to go up and up because you're looking at it from a much bigger picture. And then you have to apply all this behavioral science to people in government at high levels as well.
1: Yeah, it's probably not unlike, you know, growing a a huge corporation with individual stores. Like I think of Starbucks, you go from you know Howard Schultz probably went from having a couple of coffee shops to eventually having to figure out how to manage stability of the global price of a coffee bean, which brings in all these geopolitical questions. So for us, we want our work to continue to focus on meeting people where they are in rural communities. And yet, as soon as you're talking about 1,700 communities in 10 of the highest biodiversity countries on earth, we're also then working at you know with the FAO and the United Nations on fishery policy. We're also working with you know the convention of the parties and the governments of Europe and the United States on their development agenda agendas and where coastal communities fit into those de- development agendas. Then we also have to be thinking about how to engage the DFIs, you know the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank on how do we finance community engagement? How do we scale ocean recovery? And and my belief is if we can afford to build a toll road with public finance, if we can afford to build a stadium for a team that might play 12 home games, you know, in a really, really good year, we certainly should be able to finance the natural resources on which humanity not only depends, but evolved from.
0: I'm with you on that. I know you need to finance the work that goes into all of this community engagement, but do you also need to finance the transition? Is there a dip in income often in these communities as they change the way they're fishing?
1: You know, conceptually yes, economically yes. In our practice, we haven't really seen it because mm. for the most part there's not a lot of records. It's not like there's a a pro forma for coastal fisheries. There's not a balance sheet. There's no reporting. So generally, what we have found, and it's it's not necessarily intuitive, but what we have found is people tend to not even recognize that dip in the transition because they weren't counting how much money they were making to begin with. So I I think it's fair to say they're being paid in part with a identity, with a social benefit, with a You know, a sense of purpose that lets them almost forego that question temporarily while the fish stock recovers. But do we need to finance it? Certainly, when we're talking about that's the community, the unbanked informal economy view. As soon as we're talking about companies that are buying fish that have a cash flow statement and a balance sheet, and they're going to change their own practice and maybe fish a little bit less in the near term. While they expand and ramp up, where we've created, for example, the Malloy Fund, which is this twenty-three million dollar impact investment fund, then yes, we're financing, usually with loans, a transition to, you know, a more bankable, investable supply chain that might give them the kind of certification necessary to export their crabs for the first time. So, paying for that transition, yes, we definitely are financing. Those transitions and there's a lot more opportunity there than we expected.
0: And um, before we leave, you've done some really neat stuff. or starting to do some neat stuff. I don't know if you can talk about it or not in Hollywood. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, what we've learned over the last couple of years is that people are people. No surprise. So whether you're talking about changing the behavior of a fisherman in the Philippines, you know, or or a, a woman in a savings club in Brazil, or writers in the writers' room in Hollywood, people are people and we are developing a really exciting vision that says if you see it on screen and it becomes a normal behavior, like the getaway car is electric, or everybody sits down for dinner on Sex in the City and they all order a plant rich diet and nobody even comments on it. If you see it on screen and then you can amplify it with social media, our research is showing you can begin to create expectations that change is coming for the same reason that people have been paying for product placement, you know, since post-World War II. And so I think there's a new art form that we can develop about subtly promoting a sustainable lifestyle in the world. So hopefully it pans out, but I'm really excited about it.
0: I'm so excited about it too. And I'm so excited about all the work you're doing. I'm so happy that we got to meet. I really look forward, fingers crossed, to you and I working together in the future. But in the meanwhile, congratulations on everything you've done over the past years. It's truly incredible to see from the sidelines here. And thank you. Thank you for taking the time to tell us about it.
1: You're a rock star, JJ. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Everyone so much for listening today. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please follow us on Twitter. You can join our new Atlantis Labs conversation on discord, or if you have a comment about this particular episode, you can leave it on good pods. You can find all those links in our show description. See you next time.